Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm excited to have Ari Rabenhoft here on the show today. Ari is a legislative director and chief policy advisor for Senator Bernie Sanders, though today he is here speaking on behalf of his own beliefs. In this episode, we are going to talk about whether college should be free in this country. For better or for worse, I credit Ari's boss, Senator Sanders, with bringing the notion of free college to the national agenda. Back in 2016, when I was still working at Brookings, I recall reading and summarily disregarding his platform for tuition-free college. What seemed like a far-fetched idea not too long ago has become a mainstream policy position in the Democratic Party. Since so much of the leftward progress on this issue has been driven by Senator Sanders, Ari seemed like the perfect person to have this conversation with. Ari, I'm so pleased to have you with me today to talk about this. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Beth. Now, Ari, you and I have been friends for a long time. And something that I have always enjoyed about our conversations is that when we talk about things like this that are not necessarily fit within my belief system, is that I really respect that both you and your boss don't try to use any sort of magical economics to justify these policies. So you're not trying to sell me on the idea that free higher education is going to pay for itself or something like that. Instead, you rightly acknowledge the costs of these sorts of programs, but you argue that they're worth it. And so that's a fun conversation for me to have because I think it's easier to engage with. So, you know, I'd like to start out by just offering you the chance to kind of make the the elevator pitch for why we should have free college or tuition-free college, whatever it is that you believe specifically in this country. So, look, I think there is a there is a real societal benefit to making a level of public colleges, universities, but also let's not forget and I feel like this part is left out of the conversation community colleges, but also trade programs, programs that allow people to build a skill and some level of apprenticeships. So that kind of bucket of things, I feel like we end up talking about four-year colleges and forget about apprenticeships and trade schools, which can be just as valuable. Yeah, absolutely. To make them tuition-free. And look, I think here's my rationale, which we as a country have kind of existed in a mode of social, have, have had a social compact. And obviously, look, my politics, I want that social compact to be vastly opened up. But I do feel like there is a basic social compact that we exist in. And we basically have said as a country that there is a certain level of educational attainment that is required to reach middle class, not not be rich, but be middle class. You know, we started as an agrarian society. And in that case, there was kind of a primary schooling system based on that. 19, the early 20th century, kind of the first half, there was the high school movement takes place in America. And what basically happens is you're in the midst of the industrial, the industrial revolutions taking place. You have the World War I and World War II period. Society, our economy develops to the point where a factory job was kind of the standard middle class system. And to work in the factory and get that job and get that pension and be able to have a car and a nice little suburban house and take your family on vacation, the the kind of definition of what a middle-class life is, you got to work in the factory. To work in the factory at that point required high school degree, possibly military experience, but required that level of education. And so you end, you know, in the beginning of the World War II period, because of the movement from 1910 to kind of 1940, 
you see in 1940, it's about a quarter of the country had a high school diploma lower end. You know, you get to somebody 75, it was very few. You get to somebody 25, I think it was, it was, it was closer to 50% at that point. But you have a rapid expansion of people getting high school diplomas because we created a world in which a, a secondary education, which was required to have a middle-class life, became became a right, became available, became a right, and by, and then, by the way, became compulsory up to 16. We are in now a post-industrial period, right, where the factory jobs have gone for the most part. They still exist somewhat, but for the most part, those are, those are disappearing. And the jobs we're seeing that produce a middle-class lifestyle tend to be in IT, healthcare, tends to be in those fields. To get those jobs and to achieve that middle-class lifestyle, uh, life that I think I think is vital, and I'll explain why I think it's vital in a second. A some form of post-secondary education, be it a kind of basic four-year bachelor's degree, community college, or some form of trade school, is required for that at this point in in our in our country. And as as you know, I think you're not going to disagree with what I'm about to say, but like a statistic that's widely cited that college a college degree, and you can totally correct me if I'm wrong here means a million dollars or more income in your life. Right, something like that. That's the difference between middle class and work. That, that million dollars, which essentially over a 40-year career is about 25,000 a year, and averaging and being very general, but that's, that's the difference between working class and middle class. That, that income is the difference between kind of the, like I think what we would classify as achieving the American dream from the working class and not achieving the American dream. And look, I think that we this social compact, and we've also seen there was a study, I want to say it was published in the National Academy of Sciences, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences earlier this year, that it's not only income, like literally there is a, you know, white college life expectancy, white college degree, black college degree, then it drops significantly, white non-college degree, black non-college degree, right? Literally, and it's because people who who don't have degrees tend to have more kind of deaths of despair situations. So there's literally a, to me, there's a societal interest in maintaining kind of the social compact that we have done. And look, that doesn't mean making every school tuition free. I do not think the college I went to should be tuition free, right? A Brandeis where I went to school. I still have student loans from it. It probably was not the best economic decision on earth to go there because I'm still paying my student loans. But that shouldn't be free. Like a private, high-end liberal arts university shouldn't be free. But SUNY, where I could I could have gone to a SUNY school. Which is where I went to school. Right. Well, I believe, <laughs> yeah, SUNY, you went to Albany? Right. Right. SUNY Albany should probably be free. And I think that will have other benefits within the system. and. I think that we can discuss, but I think generally within the system, creating a kind of public, let's call it a public option for education, where like, just like I can choose, if I'm a parent, I can choose to send my kid to the public high school. I can choose to pay tuition to send my kid to a Catholic school. I can choose to pay massive amounts of tuition and send my kid to like a prep school. I can homeschool if I want. Like you have options in the system let me interrupt you there, Ari, because I want to I want to say, you know, the the system that we have in place today, 
like the discussion today is really being largely dominated by liberal ideology, which is to say student loan cancellation, free college, they're all at the top of the agenda today. But the existing system we have in higher ed is actually more of a conservatively oriented system in that we have what I would call a voucher system for higher education. And that means... I would classify it as neoliberal, but we can... Okay, let's call it that. (laughs) So we have a system where, you know, we give students dollars and let them take them to whichever school they'd like to go to. And the the belief behind that or else the, the belief that I have behind that is that it encourages competition between institutions and it it creates the least distortion of incentives that we know create inefficiency in the market. And so my understanding of your position is that you believe everyone should have access to this public option as you described. But that public option would be something that's centrally funded rather than something that would could be funded with vouchers. So why is that a better system? What do you see in that that's advantageous? Well, two pieces. One, we've existed in this voucher funding system for what I think we'd agree generally three decades now about. Because mm-hmm. in the 70s, you see a transition where the public option kind of did exist when we had very low attendance at universities. Right now, it's about 30% of America has a bachelor's degree, round about 30%, let's give or take. And, you know, you have under Governor Reagan at the time, a transition, the University of California system is the example people like to throw out, transitions from a place where it's free to $150 kind of fee structure, which is about $1,000 in today in 1970, which is about $1,000 in today's dollars, which is still... Like if you're talking about a thousand dollar fee to attain to attend UCLA, I think everyone would be like, "That's a spectacular deal." Well, I would argue that at its current price tag, it's still a pretty good deal with a million dollar return. <laughs> yeah, we can get to that in a second. But here's the problem with the voucher system: the voucher system it creates two kind of perverse incentives that I think are off. One, I think we have seen a massive increase in the cost of higher education all around. And it is in part, I think, a failure of the Department of Education under multiple administrations to spend this money with kind of no real reining in on costs. And part of the problem, and frankly, part of the problem there is a political problem with some of the most people don't recognize this, but some of those powerful political figures in America are people who run their state university institutions who can call their senator and member of Congress up and say, don't like, I don't want the Department of Education screwing me over. But I want to push back on that, Ari, because just a moment ago, you told me that you believe the level of prosperity that comes with having a college degree is now part of the American dream. And so are you part of what has pushed prices higher in this country? Is that is it that belief that everybody needs to have a bachelor's or an associate's degree? Well, I don't think that belief pushed it. I think the reality of I think we've seen a progression, not just in the United States, but around the world about what education means. I don't think this, I think this has been pushed by market forces far more vast than a belief system. I think it's been pushed by market forces that dictate what the jobs are out there, what the training need that an assembly, there isn't an assembly line job that you can get trained with on the spot. So I think that there is not a, it's not a belief that drove that. It's kind of the reality of our economic universe that drove that. I think that the, like, we create an incentive that definitely increased the cost of colleges, in part by kind of separating in a way, and I think consumer education about that they're spending from the consumer, the way the vouchers are done, where as an 18-year-old, you're, you're given a bunch of papers and told this is 
free and low interest. And you saw like, look, I acknowledge I was 18. It's on me, but also you're staking an 18 year old with a stack of bank loans and saying like, guess what? These are yours now. This is going to pay for you. So a system that relies on 18 year olds having to make financially savvy choices is something that makes you uncomfortable. I'm sensing. (laughs) It does. But also let's be clear. There's another side of this, which Look, I, I acknowledge kind of the economic inefficiency of my argument, but where, where I think the problem with the policy primarily lies is it's kind of a sociological problem more than an economic problem. And I think, you know, anytime there is not the belief in this country, what, what you said might very well be true that anybody could get a voucher and go to school, right? Right. But that belief does not manifest itself in reality. Right. People, people are people are fundamentally scared, right, of the cost of higher education. It dissuades people who would otherwise benefit from higher education systems from entering higher education systems. Also, that belief has another perverse outcome, which allows bad market players, like some of the for profits, to kind of enter the system and create even worse financial things with kind of slick advertising that tries to like fudge over the fact that these people are going to end up worse off in some cases. Right. I mean, there's there's absolutely an issue that there has been an emergence of a, a private for-profit sector in higher education that has really done a disservice to students. That, that I completely agree with you. And look, I think in terms of policy design, right, you look at like the most successful policies in our country's history, the things that are enduring, the things that last, the things that politically untouchable because people just expect them. You take, it's the simple guaranteed policies that people can understand that work. Social Security. Social Security, Medicare, right? Medicare is actually an incredibly complex program, but you know, part A, B, D, blah, blah, blah. But people fundamentally understand from my paycheck goes a Medicare tax. And when I am 65, I will get healthcare. That is kind of universally and fundamentally understood in this country. It is fundamentally understood that I pay a social security tax and I am guaranteed a certain amount of income for that tax. And the reason those programs work is because of that. And when we voucherize programs, part of the incentive of voucherizing, part of the intent of voucherizing programs is to actually disincentivize on a policy design, it does disincentivize use in a lot of ways. And my argument is if if a fundamental part, and this is the kind of thing I didn't get to, a fundamental part of my vision for America, and look, I acknowledge it's not might not be everybody's, it's a place where we have social mobility. And the fundamental path from the working class from a working class family to a middle class family is a college degree. I think that is a very basic thing. And therefore I think there should be an option. So a kid in elementary school knows fundamentally that if I study hard, if I work, I will be able to go to college and I will be able to have a better life than my parents did because I went to school. And creating that incentive does create, in my mind, a mass sociological change. I think that has been backed up. Now, look, there are other, there are other issues that have to be dealt with that don't relate to costs. And I feel like even on the left, these are sometimes played down, like college dropouts among people not there are not just based on inability to pay. And sometimes we put it too much on that is based on a whole realm of sociological factors. There's a certain segment of people who don't start. And there are segments of people who drop out and there are segments of people who don't engage because they get scared by that cost. And I think it is fully worth it 
as a society, look, and we know the cost according to CBO of like the the public the thing I mentioned is 48 billion. There's in Bernie's bill, if we're talking about that specifically, there's about another 20 billion in other stuff, HPCUs, which we could talk about the importance of that, but that's kind of a separate conversation. Pell grants, which I think, I think generally, even across the spectrum, there is a there's a desire to increase Pell Grant funding. I think so. Yeah. And and look, I think there should be, I'm fine with the voucherized system continuing to exist for private colleges. So beyond beyond a public option, having a voucher system on top of that is seems reasonable to you. I'm, it seems, yes, because you're giving, you're creating that market incentive. And this is the point, you're creating a mark, the way you structurally design the program where the federal government's taking a chunk and the states or who manage the universities are taking a chunk. You're actually creating incentives to drive down the cost of college for states as they increase enrollment, which I think is a good incentive. But let's come back. I want to agree with you first on the importance of higher education as a mechanism for social mobility in the economy. I think that's critically important. Obviously, I, I come to that problem with a different solution than the one that you have. But I want you to respond to the fact that what we have, the closest thing we have now to a socialized system of higher education is the community college system, which is on average net free or has a a negative net price, meaning grants cover the cost on average for students who attend community colleges. If you look at the data on student success coming through community colleges, it's pretty terrible. We see that graduation rates out of community college are exceedingly low, and they're even a lot lower than the for-profit and nonprofit private sector competitors to those institutions. So, you know, from my viewpoint, I look at that and say, how are we going to have a system like you're describing that, that is high quality? That to me seems like the crux of the problem, because what you describe sounds really great, but how do we, ha- how do we create that system, both those so that it's high quality... Let's assume we can fund it and everybody decides that we're, we're fine spending the money that it costs to get there, but have high quality and also not have capacity constraints so that there's rationing of seats. Yeah, look, first off, I think there does need to be a conversation about when we made the educational choice in our country, kind of in the 1910s, 1940s, we also went in a different direction than, than Europe and a lot of other places with High school, we kind of didn't track people. A lot of other countries said, no, we're going to like early track people. You, you're going to college. You, you're not going. Like, and I think, by the way, I think that was the right decision. And I think our education system is stronger because we did not, we did not take that approach of kind of top-down control over what students' options are. But what you did see in those periods and what would be needed would be, first off, you would need a kind of expansion of higher education in this country. But I actually do think. I think the question is, we do have a system of public colleges and universities in this country beyond community colleges. Those public colleges and universities, in a lot of ways, are some of our best educational institutions in this country, be it the University of Texas, the UC, the, the flagships of the UC system, University of Michigan. SUNY Albany. SUNY Albany. <laughs> I mean, it's, and you have these, and look, there is a disparity, like, there are certain, co- I, won't, I won't like mock a college by saying it's bad, but they're obviously at university systems. My wife mentioned her home state, who would probably mention her home state, that are just not as good as, you know, a University of Michigan, which is like one of the best universities in this, in this country. Right. There's hu- huge range of quality. There's huge. And it's based on kind of state 
state initiatives and how these university systems function. I think you would need an expansion. And look, there is there is a risk in how you've expanded it. But I do actually think that the state-run institutions, not locally run institutions, because most a lot of community colleges are run by the local community. Some are run by the state systems, but they're more managed locally. And states have actually shown a very good aptitude for running high quality educational systems. Now the question is, could we expand and how fast? And look, it would be it would be a process. And I think over the years, and I think there is some there is some level of selectivity, right? That if you're in Texas, the top students will go to university performing in high school will go to University of Texas. But it does say something if I know, and this is my point, if I know I am do well in school, I will be able to go to University of Texas as a I'm a poor kid in Houston. University of Texas will be free for me if I do X, right? And I think having, and there are certain layers of that in our country already, but universalizing it, because I know somebody's going to email in and say, well, this program makes University of Texas free because there are always 100 programs. The problem is, is not that programs don't exist. It's that they're all spread out. There's kind of no federal approach and there's no kind of concept of post-secondary education as a fundamental, as kind of a fundamental part of our of our system. And and look, I acknowledge there are inefficiencies that have to be overcome. What scares me is the current voucher system has demonstrated huge inefficiencies in both how students operate, in both the students not understanding what they are taking on, in the student debt conversation, which is a separate conversation we can have another another time and how students select what loan program they enter after those those have been always complex and i know the answer is always and, and literally the answer you always get when you kind of confront these problems is well we can fix it with this systematic fix to this problem the problem i see is generally in policy design kind of that not to label something but that neoliberal approach always creates those inefficiencies on that side and what I'm, what I just generally believe is I'm willing to accept a cost inefficiency for the sociological benefit. I think that makes some sense. So Ari, I, I get what you're saying. There's this huge range, there's a lot of work to be done. It's kind of a incremental process of trying things, fixing things. But what's, you know, right now we have this mechanism of accountability for higher education where institutions have to get accreditation. We have to make sure that they are not having all their students default on their student loans. What do you imagine in a free college regime is an effective system for keeping colleges accountable and ensuring the quality that's really important to this system generating that social mobility that you and I both think is important? Sure. First, I do think there actually needs to be, even if we stuck to the current system, there needs to be tighter standards for how the federal government's doling out money because we are giving out tons of money all over the place, be it in the form of loans, grants, Work study, you go through the you go through the list. We're tossing out a lot of money right now. And I, I actually don't think the accountability has been good enough on universities. I think universities, a lot of universities have been financially irresponsible. A lot of universities have allowed costs that do not affect student educational outcome attainment and classrooms to spike the price of tuition. And I think we do need more, regardless of what changes the system. I think universities, public and private, are basically federal institutions 
right now. Like with the amount of money they're getting, every educational institution is a public institution in this country. That's true. Or they're or they're in a sense contractors of the federal right. government. <laughs> they're they're ba- yes. I mean that's that's what they are. And there just needs to be more accountability across the board there. I would argue that two elements of kind of the system I favor. One is the federal state split is helpful in that so the federal government, you know, there have been a variety of different splits and you can kind of change the numbers up. And I actually do think if you implemented the system, you should have some automatic stabilizers in the system for a variety of reasons. So the number could slide based on kind of economic stabilization because it doesn't often make sense to lock to a number and then economic situations change. So you do need some stabilizers in the system. But I do think, first off, splitting that between federal and state means state governments that would basically have to choose to participate in the system because states could reject participation, which is always a possibility as we learned during Obamacare. But if a state participated, some of the cost controls would be on them because they would be, have to be under kind of the numbers that Bernie has put forward and I kind of like the state's responsible for one third the cost, which is a significant enough chunk that there's an impetus to like hold that to make sure that is being spent well, the other two thirds of federal dollars. So there's that. I do think the Department of Education, regardless, needs to take a like stronger look at what educational institutions are doing with their dollars, how they are, how they are using those dollars. And look, I think we have this big problem within the federal system of paying for education where there is a lack of accountability for where those dollars go. And I think that is actually a problem. And I think, look, I'm, I want the government to spend an ungodly amount of money on social programs, right? This is where we... <laughs> this is where we disagree, but that's okay. This is where we disagree. No, but, but the point is, but I don't want that money spent in ways where we're just tossing money at a wall. I do think there's, there's ways to efficiently spend it. And you look at like, I'll give you an example. Like one of the critiques of the... And this is going to be a somewhat controversial statement for certain sectors. One of the critiques that people make of the free college system is you're benefiting people who don't need the benefit at a certain point in that system, right? But you look at like a mass of education spending we do in this country, and it massively benefits people who don't need it. I'll give you an example. Like, have you looked at like the GME program? No, I'm not familiar with it. Okay. Medicare has a program called GME, Graduate Medical Education where it's essentially Medicare. So Medicare, the DOD, and VA each have kind of a version of this. The DOD and the VA one is different and runs better, actually. So through the GME program, a lot of our residency positions, so graduate medical education, residency positions for doctors are funded through this GME program. And hospitals just get all this money. And one of the problems that's in this program is the government throws all this money at training doctors, which is a, like, look, I think we all agree the training of doctors is actually a vital part of our society and a societal good. But it has no control of kind of how those slots are divvied out. So the GME program is paying for like Beverly Hills dermatologists, as well as rural primary care physicians, where I think at an economic efficiency train, like, yeah, sure, Beverly Hills needs dermatologists, but that's not the priority and that they are performing a different service than, say, an OBGYN in rural Iowa. Probably more needs more support to create that position, open it up and make sure that position is filled in our society. If we're going to say that funding graduate medical education is important, which, look, I'm going to 
probably argue it's important in the end. But I'm also going to argue that if we're going to fund it, we should probably come down, which we do, to tens of billions, tune of tens of billions of dollars. I'm going to come down and say it needs to be more, more efficiently doled out to do it. We need to take, look, I think we are spending tons of educational dollars in this country. Like, as we noted, like every college in America is essentially, I think that's a good way to put it, a contractor of the federal government. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but I think that is a good characterization. And contracted through these massive voucher systems, loans, and other, and other systems. And I think creating a system where, look, I do believe in, I know I'm a socialist, but I do believe in markets. <laughs> and I believe you because I know you. And you, you believe in that incentives matter. It changes the way people behave. But you also tend to believe that it's worth it, right? <laughs> Which is what I appreciate about your positions. Yes. And like, but here's where, but sometimes government programs, government programs, I shouldn't say sometimes, government programs create market incentives. That's part of what they do. And look, I actually think having a public option for education will mean private universities that want to attract those students now have to compete again and have to say, why are they better? Why are they filling the need better than that option over there that a student knows they can at least have an option to attend for free? And I think you would end up with, first off, you'd wipe a lot of fraud out of the system because market forces would take care of some of the fraud because it becomes a lot more difficult for them to compete. But also private colleges and universities would have to take a hard look at what they're charging students, how their budgets are working, how they, what their education is, and what their, by the way, something I think conservatives are focused on, what their outcomes are for their students than they are now, as opposed to the system now, which kind of says everybody can kind of voucherize their way into school, but there's no kind of incentive process for valuing that education. I actually think... I'm not sure I agree with you on that, Ari, because I think, you know, any individual has the incentive to be strategic about where they spend both their own dollars and any dollars that they get from the federal government to maximize the return on whatever dimension is important to them. The problem is, and I think, yes, if they view them as their dollars, but I think the way the voucher systems work is people, people tend to view it as monopoly money. Until they, until they get their first student loan bill coming after college, it's not real money. And there isn't a difference for people. And I do think creating the market incentive of having a four, having that ability to have a four-year free college. But also, by the way, I also think the other thing this does is because when you throw in the trade schools and that and create free options for that, which whether are free community college options, the actual apprenticeships and trade school system in America is actually not very good. But there would be incentives to create a system where it's like you can get the training for free to become a good mechanic. You can get the training for free to become this type of medical technician that doesn't require a nursing degree. It just requires you to know how to operate this piece of equipment, but leads you to make, you know, 25 bucks an hour, which, you know, upper end of the working class, bottom end of the middle class thing. And look, I just, that is, I am willing to accept the inefficiencies that you point out to achieve that. Yeah. Ari, what I, I hear you largely saying is that this notion of free is largely about getting rid of the complexity in the system and making the messaging really clear. And that's an argument I'm actually sympathetic for, although I see you sort of rolling your eyes here. <laughs> I hate the word, but I hate the word free. Can we, like, I really hate Interesting. it. Interesting. Because, well, I hate it because, look, as a political marketing tool, it's great, right? 
I'm giving you something free. But look, as like just my general like sense of being, nothing in the world is free. Now you sound like the neoliberal Ari. I know, but nothing in the world is free. <laughs> Everything has a cost. I think there is a value in society bear. Like we just make choices as a society that is it is worth society bearing certain costs. It is worth, we all agree, and we have differences of opinion about the level of this, it is worth society bearing the cost of some level of military in our country. We make a decision, we bear that cost. Generally, we don't, we don't call it free military. We just have a public system of national security. Right. You don't call it free security. You call it police. Right. <laughs> you don't call it free fire extinguishers. They're the fire department. Like we, right. make, we make decisions like it's not free. There's obviously costs. Right. But knowing that society is saying like our social compact says this is bared out this piece of our education system, which, by the way, if history gives us a guide. It will take time to do it'll take it takes time to get to kind of, you know, the, the free high school movement started in 1910. And it wasn't till post-World War II where the end was really achieved. And that was actually a lot more complex because the federal role in kind of education ballooned, has ballooned kind of in the last since the since World War II. It is starting with local education funding. And as you know, you know, the National Defense Education Act in the 50s, which, as I like to you know, joke around, is the beginning of conservatives beginning the cancel culture movement, which is a whole different story about the debate about that bill. We'll have you on next time for that conversation, Ari. Yes, it is actually a fascinating one. But <laughs> the, other, the other point is that it's, yeah, sorry I interrupted with this, but I really hate the like, it's free. It, first off, I do think there is, you know, we're still talking about people having to figure out how to live while they're doing it. Right. Buy groceries, put gas in the car, feed their children. But there's a difference when they're doing that. People have to do that anyway. They can make a time. You're going to have to make sacrifices in life to do this. Right. But making that sacrifice is worthwhile in the long run for the following reasons. So nothing is free. And I think I, I just hate that terminology. I'm really glad you jumped in with that, actually, because I think that's an interesting nuance to your argument, because what I often find sympathetic to the free community college movement is that I say, okay, well, it's really just a change in rhetoric because we already have free community college largely. So it's interesting that you sort of reject that characterization, but it, it makes sense. I get, I get what you're saying there. Yeah. It's just, I want people to believe that they can go to school and it's paid for, right? I think you get into a dangerous situation policy-wise when we think people can do things without consequence or financial ramifications. Because obviously it has a consequence and a financial ramification and a, and a cost. Now, I think that cost is worthwhile. I think we have spent a lot more on a lot less on a bunch of, on a bunch of things. And we have shown the ability, be it certain tax programs that I believe have perverse incentives where we have cut taxes back in what I think are silly ways, or be it certain, we have increased military spending in the past four years in line with what it would cost to run the whole program that I laid out. But we have made those choices, right? We didn't get free military. We expanded the cost of the military in the United States. And public higher education, you believe, is worth the price tag. Yeah. Well, Ari, I think that's a great place to stop the conversation. I want to thank you for coming here, especially knowing that I was going to vehemently disagree with you on many fronts. So I appreciate your willingness 
to have the conversation. And as always, I, I learned something from the discussion today. So thank you for your time. Thank you. I never imagined I'd be on an American Enterprise Institute podcast, but you know. <laughs> the first time for everything. Take care. Thank you. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe. You can find us on all major platforms. I'd also love if you'd leave us a review. It definitely helps new listeners to find us. I also wanted to let you know that today will be our final episode of the season. We're taking a short break for the summer and we'll return to you with new content in September. We've got some great shows lined up and I'm really excited to bring those to you when the time comes. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you. So please reach out through my website and find me on Twitter as always. I've had a blast starting up this podcast and I hope you've enjoyed it just as much. I can't thank you enough for listening and subscribing to the show because that's what makes it possible to keep it going. See you in September.